Hello, and welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul. Edmonton Community Foundation plays many roles in the community. We are the largest non-governmental funder of the charitable sector in the greater Edmonton area, providing more than $30 million every year to hundreds of charities. We are also a community convener, providing space for communities to tell their stories. This is why we're partnering with the Edmonton Queer History Project to present Breend versus Alberta, a special podcast series about the groundbreaking Supreme Court ruling that paved the way for equality for Canada's 2SLGBTQI community. Before we begin, we would like to note that the terms queer and trans and sexual and gender minorities are used in this series to refer to the 2SLGBTQI community as a whole. We acknowledge the great diversity within this community, and you can find more information about this in our show notes. And now, Vreend versus Alberta. There, there are always dark forces. There are always forces of hatred and exclusion. The human rights code are only the bare minimums. We should be vastly exceeding these. Politics uses division and toxicity because it works. The Breen decision was an important turning point in the development of the law. It had been described as a slippery slope. This was more of a cliff. It added the queers to all of the huddled masses. So the impact goes beyond the borders. But we will always have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that will be there precisely for the minority to protect them from the political mumbling always. So if you think you can make a difference, yes, you can. Welcome to episode nine of Breen versus Alberta. This series is produced by the Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Queer History Project. I'm your host, Darren Hagen. In the quarter century since the Breen decision was handed down, everyone involved has had time to assess the impact of the change they instigated. Change that extends beyond this province, beyond Canada, and even around the globe. But it all started here, and there is a very good reason for that. Sheila Greckel puts the battle for equality into an Alberta context. Well, let's face it, we are in the bastion of conservatism here in Alberta. And I've always said that that's the reason people fight so hard and have been so successful. I think the Breen decision was an important turning point in the development of the law. Um, and we're all moving towards what we hope to be a period of freedom and peace and tranquility for members of the community. To this day, Judge Julie Lloyd, the first openly lesbian judge in Alberta, is full of admiration and respect for Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And when she recalls in detail why the written decision moved her so much, it's easy to be moved ourselves. It changed it a lot. The fact that we won wasn't a surprise, but the robustness and the beauty, the magnificence of that decision that Justice Corey wrote in the Section 15 part in particular really laid such a wonderful ground forward. They talked about the centrality of equality rights to democracy. You don't have democracy if you don't have equality. It talked about the central importance of human dignity. Treating everyone with dignity and respect is what the Charter is about, and those are the best parts of Canada. Doug Stollery breaks down what this new reality meant to the lives of queer and trans Albertans. Once the decision came out, it was illegal to discriminate against people in this province on the basis of their sexual orientation. So instead of fearing that if your employer knew that you were gay or knew that you were lesbian, that you would be fired, 
you knew that even if you came out, even if they knew that you were gay, you were still going to have your job. You were still going to have your apartment. It enabled people to come out of the closet. And living in the closet, the closet is a very dark place. And being able to come out of the closet and people to be able to live their authentic lives made a huge difference for people in this province. The other thing that happened was, this was so controversial when the decision came down. I would say six months later, it wasn't so controversial anymore. And honestly, six months later, in my view, there was less homophobia than there had been, and it wasn't just because the law had changed. That's not to say that homophobia went away. That's not to say that we don't, there isn't homophobia today. But the degree is significantly less than it was. And I think in large measure because of this decision. For me, it just underscores the importance and the power of courts and the charter. Because in my experience of the world, there, there are always dark forces. There are always forces of hatred and exclusion and oppression. They're just always there. Remember that the Charter is about recognizing that. It's about recognizing that politics uses division and hatred and division and toxicity because it works. And so we have a Charter that says, this is, this is the basement. Like, this is the core rock foundation of Canadian society below which you can't sink. These are the fundamental rights that are protected for everyone. And that doesn't change. The politics can bubble around on the surface and people can continue to fall back to their divisiveness and their hatred and their intolerance. But we will always have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that will be there precisely for the minority to protect them from the political mumbling always. And so I have a confidence that those instruments will continue to save our bacon. Dr. Christopher Wells, Research Chair at McEwen University's Institute of Studies for Sexual Minorities, reminds us of the importance and imperfections of human rights codes. You know, that's an important thing for, for people to remember that, you know, the, the human rights code are only the bare minimums in society. We should be vastly exceeding these in terms of you know, rights, protections, and legislation, and inclusion. This is the basic level of respect that should be accorded to people. And so um, the fact that the Alberta government was not even willing to do the bare minimum, and in fact, it would take 11 more years for the Alberta government to write sexual orientation into the Human Rights Act. The ripple effect of the Vreend ruling is making waves even today. This decision was, for Alberta, a turning point. But the impact of the decision could be experienced on a national scale, benefiting every Canadian. Let's not forget that the Delwyn-Vren Supreme Court case invoked the Charter on the province of Alberta to include sexual orientation. As a result of that, every province that didn't have sexual orientation in their provincial legislation also had to amend their legislation. So the impact goes beyond the borders. This is a decision that not just Alberta is impacting the rest of Canada. It did affect 
the lives of sexual minorities across the country. There were a couple of other jurisdictions as well that had not included sexual orientation in their uh, legislation. And so when the Green decision came down, it was clear that those laws were unconstitutional as well. And so it helped the queer community in a really important way because it added the queers to all of the huddled masses, ragtag groups of other people who have been subject to historic discrimination. So we were tossed in to the crowd with people of color, women, religious minorities. Finally, we were one of the gang because up to that point, queer had a little asterisk beside it. That was a minority status. It was okay to discriminate against. You couldn't discriminate against people of color or women. We all knew that. But gays, maybe. And Green actually just cleared the decks of that, saying, uh-uh, you know, sexual orientation, it belongs right up there with all the enumerated grounds of discrimination that have historically bedeviled modern civilization. And so that was a huge thing. We were part of the team, and that was nice. The other part of it is that, and again, the magnificence of the decision really made people understand how wrong we had been by wondering whether it was okay to discriminate against gay people because it was actually a fight between religions and gay people, or it was a fight between morality and gay people. And the Supreme Court of Canada sliced and diced those decisions quite beautifully. During and after the case, many religious groups and opponents of queer inclusion argued and warned that the inclusion of sexual orientation as a protected ground in human rights legislation could be the first step in the erosion of the traditional codes and could lead to societal-altering change like marriage equality. As Doug Stollery and Chris Wells point out, they were not wrong. Well, it had been described by the, the, the leader of the Alberta Women, the Federation for Families, as a slippery slope. This was more of a cliff, frankly, than a slippery slope. Once this decision came down, case after case after case struck down discriminatory legislation where there was discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And that changed the lives of gays and lesbians across the country. Attitudes changed remarkably quickly. This decision and the strength with which the Supreme Court of Canada wrote this decision, the way they explained how fundamentally wrong discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation was and how inconsistent it was with the fundamental values that we have in our society, that had a real impact. Yeah, the Vreen decision from the Supreme Court of Canada was one of those important dominoes. And I, I like to think of them as dominoes because you have to line uh, the first few ones up. So that requires a lot of you know, strategy, a lot of uh, community energy and investment. But once you eventually start to line the dominoes up and then you push, and then they all start to fall, you know, quickly and rapidly. And, and that's, um, you know, the metaphor for often for social change is the first few battles are often the hardest. And then, right, the floodgates start to open. So Vreen was, you know, hugely uh, significant. But having had this victory at the Supreme Court of Canada, case after case after case that followed started knocking down discriminatory legislation on a whole range of fronts, including discriminatory legislation relating to marriage. So a year after, in a case called M versus H, before the Supreme Court of Canada, the court found that 
having different rights and benefits as between opposite-sex mar uh, married couples and same-sex couples was unconstitutional. And two or three years after that, First Court in Ontario determined that the definition of marriage was unconstitutional, followed by decisions to the same effect right across the country. And a year or so after that, the government of Canada changed the law uh, on marriage in Canada in order to uh, enable same-sex marriage. Canada had stepped into a new future, and by doing so, had opened a door globally by establishing a precedent of equality without exception. Soon, other nations were looking to that precedent for guidance in their own struggles for equality. Doug Stollery and Sheila Greckel share some examples of the wide-ranging impact of their years of hard work. So the impact of the Breen decision isn't limited to Canada. For example, in, the, uh, in a case in Belize, the Supreme Court of Belize struck down the anti-sodomy laws, the laws that created, that criminalized same-sex relationships. And in their decision, they cited the case of Freen versus Alberta. It has been cited in, ca in cases in countries around the world, uh, and I think has had a worldwide impact. I know for sure in South Africa, it was an important piece of the puzzle that went into affirming rights for gay and lesbian people in South Africa. Um, I know that in other parts of the world, it has become part of the international jurisprudence. Um, I, for example, was in training judges in Jamaica, and Jamaica, the struggle is ongoing, but, you know, to be able to go there and say, in Canada, this is what happened. This is what I was involved in. We have gay marriage now in Canada. To be able to go and say that, I'm so proud of our country. I'm so proud of the things that have happened. And every time it's another step in the road to equality and freedom, in these countries where, you know, the struggle is ongoing as we speak, where people's lives actually are in danger. For Murray Billet, pride in the triumph he had been part of was amplified at every level of life in Alberta. There was a sense of triumph. There was complete exhaustion. There, the, a sense of pride of family, of community, of city, of province. Because what people don't understand, the support that we had was not just in the queer community. It wasn't just in the allies community. We had support under the dome. We had support in major corporations, in small business, in big business. So the pride that we have as, as a city and a community shouldn't be lost. And the sense of accomplishment has to be remembered. Think about that, you guys. We've been involved in a case that, is, that has had an impact, not just in our city and our country, on the whole damn world. So if you think you can make a difference, yes, you can. For Julie Lloyd, the impact was personal and profound. Yeah, I remember the, the feeling that hit me the most was a feeling of, I belong now. You know, I belong. I'm a queer person in Alberta, and I belong here now. I remember sitting looking at the legislative dome, the legislature building in Edmonton, and just thinking, you know, that place is my place now. And so that was the most profound feeling to me, was to move from an outsider and part of an unrecognized, reviled minority to belonging. And that was a huge effect, very powerful for me. This concept of inclusion and belonging and how fundamentally important they are to society could be one of the most important legacies of the Vreen decision. 
Justice Frank Iacobucci, one of the nine Supreme Court justices that had presided over the hearing, and, along with Justice Corey, the co-author of the written reasoning behind the decision, was reminded of the importance of the concept of belonging after reading a letter to the editor in the Ottawa Citizen, a week or so after the ruling was released. When the Green case came out, I think it was maybe a week later, my wife at breakfast said, Frank, you should read this letter to the editor. And it was a mother writing to say that she had read about the Green decision and she was encouraged to write a letter to the editor because her son had took his life because he was depressed. He was gay. And she speculated that perhaps if her son had been alive when that decision came out, that it might have given him some inspiration uh, for looking at the world more positively. I admit openly that I was moved so much by that and so sorry for her having to say that and commending her for the courage uh, to write to the editor in such a wonderful way to salute her son and um, share with all of us her grief and sorrow. Uh, I was really deeply touched. In the decades since the ruling, diversity, inclusion, and a sense of belonging have become pivotal objectives for institutions across Canada. Now let's bring our story full circle, back to where we began. One of those institutions is the King's University, the very institution that fired Delwyn Vreen for being gay in 1991. Let's listen to the president of King's University since 2013, Dr. Melanie Humphreys. It became very apparent to me really clear um, at the beginning of my presidency that there was a deep hurt that was still resident in the community related to the Vereen case, um, a lot of shame. And in very real ways, we feel like we failed, Delvin. I personally believe that you can only engage well with your education if you are seen as fully human in all its aspects. And so you can call that safety, you would call it being brave, you can, you can go at it a number of different ways, but unless you feel fully able to be engaged in a space, you're never going to be able to learn what you need to learn. And so as a university, this is pretty critical in how we welcome people, how we welcome new students, how we welcome faculty and staff, because this is, this is our whole mission, it's our whole uh, reason for being, and that is how do we help people grow, succeed, flourish, change, be. And so we started off with that very thing. How do we have conversations about any topic that we disagree about? And uh, that led into, okay, what about this topic in particular? What about LGBTQ folks and what should our statement on inclusion look like? And so uh, that was a really fascinating and a long process. If you know anything about academic communities, we don't move fast. <laughs> Harry Kitts joined the board in 2014. He recalls the university's process as well as the challenges they faced developing the institution's inclusion policy. Well, why don't I start with where, how it started to become recognized as being needed. Um, as I said, there were sort of that range of diversity that existed amongst the student body. Attention was already being paid to international students, to Indigenous students. 
students with disabilities. There was a student-led LGBTQ group on campus that was relatively open, and the conversations around that were starting to happen uh, already when I first became a board member in 2014. Where do we go with this? Because we know our legacy and history, but we haven't done anything specific about it. What we started with was just sort of starting conversations. Uh, I remember in June of 2017, there was a board retreat where one of the topics very much was LGBTQ issues. We had a couple of case studies that we read. A trans student came and spoke to us about their experience at King's and what that felt like. And the conversation started to sort of roll from there a little bit. And it was happening internally as well, both amongst the students, amongst the faculty and staff. Part of, of what uh, President Humphreys did at the time was to set up an inclusion task force. One of the things that I uh, did was establish an equity, diversity, and inclusion task force. And, and the good, good work that happened out of that task force is that we examined all our policies and procedures for implicit and explicit bias. We looked at everything with multiple lenses. So we worked with faculty, staff, and students uh, to, to really take a good hard look at everything we do. Uh, and then there were lots of safe space conversations, small groups. Then I think the sort of culmination of all of that conversation was a sort of word process that we undertook. So in that word sort, we had words that we thought might be included in uh, a statement on inclusion. Words that we thought, no, these don't belong in a statement on inclusion and words that maybe are contested. So we just asked people, we gave people little baggies of words and we asked them to sort them into those three piles. And then we took the no and the, the, uh, the uh, contentious words off the table and said, okay, build your statement on inclusion with these yes words. And once we did that, we put those up around the room and guess what? They all looked pretty much the same. And so some of the difficulty, I think, with this conversation is that we make a lot of assumptions. We make a lot of assumptions as to what inclusion is or what it isn't. And so getting those words on a page in front of everyone was really important for our process to getting to some kind of clear commitment to statement on inclusion. Certainly people didn't agree on specifically what their own personal position was on traditional marriage or whatever, but they were willing to talk together about how do we create a welcoming and inclusive space. From there, we took those three statements and the board crafted a single statement out of that. And the board eventually voted on it unanimously to support that as the statement of King's. That was in fall of 2018. The King's University soon learned that doing the right thing often comes with a cost. So the board adopted it unanimously and I spent probably a year and a half, a bit more, working with different church groups to explain what exactly what we meant by the statement on inclusion. We didn't necessarily come to agreement, but there was more understanding of why King's was going the direction it was and why, as a university, it was different than a church. Church can take whatever position, but a, a university that's supported by that church doesn't have to have exactly the same position. There were a couple of churches at the end of the day that couldn't make that journey with us. There was one major foundation that couldn't come with Kings, but other than that, uh, this, it's the same same group they came with us. There were some churches who decided to support more because of the position that we had taken, and there were some supporters who also joined or 
in, increase their giving because of the position that we had taken. So in the end, there was a small loss overall, but there was gain on the other side. Joachim Seger was a longtime professor at the King's University and was there when Delwin was fired. He speaks to the changes he has seen at the university over the decades. I know that our president, Melanie Humphreys, was instrumental in the inclusion statement. And I know that she got a lot of flack from the community, but at the same time, she got a lot of support. I think the situation is that gay students are very much included in governing bodies. Certainly there are gay faculty teaching at King's at present, also gay staff, and it's a very different vibe. We asked if they could speak to Delwyn now, what would they say? It was a mistake. It was wrong for us to fire Delwyn. That's what I'd like to say. It's a, it's a mm, emotional question. Um, I've never met Delwyn, and um, I'd be happy to do that sometime, but uh, I wish this had not happened to him in a way that pushed him away from the community. Um, I think things have changed. It would be great if he could find uh, re reconnections, and I don't know whether they are, how many are there, but it would be great if he could find reconnections to Kings um, in, in light of where Kings has moved from that time. It is for the current students, faculty, and board at the Kings University to speak to the effectiveness of the inclusion policies now in place. For Delwyn, there is still a deep wound that is revealed when he tells the story, even today. The personal toll, the years of stress, the harsh glare of attention from supporters and antagonists alike, all contribute to tremendous and conflicting memories and feelings about that period of his life. And even though the events happened decades ago, he is still not ready to forgive the treatment he experienced at the institution. That is not something to bask in, no. I, I can be proud of it, proud that I did it, that, that, I, that I saw through to the end, but I, I more needed to move away. And that's why today I'm mainly in France. Yeah, very, in fact, there, it's so funny. Every once in a while, I don't know what makes a person do it, but they, they do a, a search on my name and it's like, and they, they know I'm Canadian. So they, they do a Delwyn in Canada and, <laughs> oh, we didn't know this. And that, you know, it comes up seven years after they've, they've known me and I've never talked about it with them. It's like, why have you never told us this? Because it's a different me. I mean, it's me, but I'm not that person now. I would be again, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm living a different life. I'm, I don't want that to be the, the, the focus of our relationship. I want, you know, that, that's something I've done. That's <laughs> something I've been involved with. I didn't do. It's someone I've, something I've been involved with, but what's important is our relationship as it's developed, not that. Delwyn had accepted the challenge and had allowed his life to become a focus of a movement. The personal toll was immense, but something he would do again if it meant creating equality for others. This is an important message to the activists listening. And in the next episode, you will learn what has unfolded since 1998. Our rights have never been handed to us. They have always been fought for. And especially today, our vigilance is our most potent weapon. We have seen how an institution attempts to address the evolving expectations of society. But remember, this was never about the King's University. The lawsuit that Delwyn brought forward was about the government of Alberta, 
and its deliberate exclusion of queer and trans people from its human rights legislation. In our next episode, we take a deeper look at how the government of Alberta has struggled to cope with the evolution of human rights since the Breen decision was handed down. We can't say the struggle is over. I don't think discrimination will ever be fully behind us. It hits you viscerally, and you know you have no choice but to fight. Human rights is a marathon, not a sprint. You can't be throwing pearls to swine. We have to advocate, we have to agitate, and we have to educate. And collaboration matters. From the small to the big, it's all part of this community effort. The fact that the case had as much impact as it did should serve as an inspiration for others to, to take up the torch. This episode of Breen vs. Alberta is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Queer History Project. It was written, directed, and hosted by Darren Hagen. It was edited and chase produced by Andrew Paul. In this episode, you heard the voices of Sheila Greckel, Julie Lloyd, Doug Stollery, Dr. Christopher Wells, Marie Billet, Justice Frankie Iacobucci, Dr. Melanie Humphreys, Harry Kitts, Joachim Seger, and Dellen Vreend. The music in Vreen vs. Alberta is written, composed, and recorded by Darren Hagen. Many thanks to our sound operators, Ariana Brophy, David Gallinger, and Andrew Paul. We'd also like to thank our production assistants, Joanne Pierce, Kara Paul, and Graham Loomer. Special thanks to Doug Stollery, Cindy Davis, Edmonton Public Schools Archives and Museum, Cambridge LLP, Goldblatt Partners LLP, Chivers Carpenter Lawyers, and Tories LLP. You can learn more about Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org and check out more queer history by visiting the Edmonton Queer History Project at edmontonqueerhistoryproject.ca.